If you have your Bibles, uh, let me ask you to turn to a couple of different places. First uh, Timothy, and put something there for this morning. And then find your way to Psalm 100. And once you find Psalm 100, let me invite you to stand with me uh, as I read the word of our Lord. And then remain standing. And Miss Barbara is going to come lead us uh, in song. Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. I certainly know uh, that this is something unusual for us. Uh, I'm not a uh, topical guy by any stretch of imagination. Uh, normally, we would be in Romans and Lord willing... We'll be back there in a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know how long we'll be on the subject of worship, but I want to explain to you, I think it's worth our time for you to understand what brings us to a topical series on worship. And that solely has to do with what me and your kids experienced this past week. As far as the preaching goes, it could not have been better. Uh, Stephen Barber, which was the reason that I signed up to go to the camp to begin with, is as sound and a biblical preacher as you're going to find anywhere. In fact, before you guys asked me to fill in before I went to the mission field, uh, we were at Riverside under Stephen Barber listening to the Word every week. And uh, he certainly did not disappoint. Some of the most spectacular messages I can ever remember hearing out of the Old Testament. The worship, however, uh, was not spectacular. Uh, it was very disappointing. Uh, it's probably very typical for... Uh, a youth camp sort of thing. My son had forewarned me uh, that I would not enjoy that, but I thought that I would be okay, but my son was right. Uh, it was not okay. And your kids stuck out like a sore thumb. Uh, out of about 200 kids, there were seven that I knew of, that at least that I could see, that stood there and really did not know what to do. And the first song, we sang about how loud we were going to be. The second song, we sang about our praise, not to God, but just our praise. The third song was in grave, significant theological error. And it wasn't until the fourth song that it began to turn and begin to glorify God and His Word. So you can imagine, by the end of the service, I was fit to be tied 
but I had no idea that I was going to get time alone with our youth. And so I was overjoyed when he announced that the altar call every time at night would be where the minister, the past, they were all youth directors. I was the pastor would get to spend time with the youth. So I was overjoyed. But you can imagine, you know, when I get beside myself, um, I get beside myself. So we had a very long heart to heart discussion about worship. We showed up the second night and the Lord has done this to me before and I was totally unprepared the first time, but he did it to me again. The man over the camp came up to me and asked me to pray to begin worship. Uh, immediately, my heart went to about 225 to 250 uh, and I overwhelmingly got concerned that I was about to speak from my own wisdom and my own heart rather than the Word of God. That's always a temptation, especially when you're not happy. And so I immediately began to beg God that I would fall off the stage before I opened my mouth and spoke from my own wisdom or my own heart. Uh, I barely made it up the stage. I now know what it means for your knees to be knocking. They were literally trembling. I was so concerned about this predicament that I was in. The night before, when Stephen Barber had prayed, they literally started playing music, all the instruments, which I never like. Um, but the instruments caused whatever through the microphone, and Stephen couldn't even finish his prayer. He had to stop. It was so loud and overwhelming. So when I walked to the stage, that was my first request. I looked at the band members and I said, please do not play while I pray. And I prayed for what I had talked to the kids about, what I understand from the Bible of what worship's supposed to be. It is supposed to be about the character of God. It is supposed to be about the works of God and it is supposed to be about the word of God. And it's not supposed to be about anything else. Of course, that did not change worship that night. It went again the very same way. But nonetheless, by this time, we were picking up steam, having conversations out of Scripture about what worship looks, looks like from the Bible. The third day, I'm standing on camp uh, during the game times, and they could not have been better. I, these two guys that did organize the camp itself, it was just absolutely marvelous. But... We're just, I'm standing in the middle of a college campus and we're doing games and a young guy walks up to me who was a youth minister, introduced himself and he said, I've got a question for you. And I said, absolutely. He said, your prayer last night, where did that come from? There was something going on. And I responded, that's not something that I can just give you the short answer for. That's a very lengthy answer. And I said, so why don't we have dinner? And so that night me and that youth minister had dinner and he began with, I know something's wrong, but he says, I don't know what it is. And I want you to help me understand. And so we opened up the word of God. And my first question was to him is, what is the authority for all preaching? And he was a very thoughtful young man. And he said, God, no, it would have to be the word of God. And I said, you're exactly right. The Word of God is the authority in the pulpit. It is not a man. It is not our ideas. It is not our feelings, emotions, or our heart. The authority in the pulpit and in the church is the Word of God. 
I said, so if that's the case, what is the source of all singing? And he sat there a few minutes and he said, wouldn't it have to be the same? And I said, you're exactly right. And he said, but that's not what we've been doing. And I said, no, therein lies your problem. That conversation led into, by this time, I'm thoroughly prepared on evenings with your youth to talk about what biblical worship looks like. And by this time, they're full steam ahead. They're answering questions. I'm not teaching anymore. They're just simply answering questions. So I'm going to the Psalms and I'm asking them, what do you see here? And they were describing in detail what was faithful in worship through the Psalms. And by this time, by the third night, they had been looking. I was sitting on one end. John was sitting on the other. And they had been watching us. And if John and I were singing, they were singing. If John and I were not singing, they were not singing. But by the third night, they weren't doing that anymore. They knew when we put words up on the screen, that's consistent and faithful with Scripture. I will sing that, followed by verses. That's weird and bizarre and about myself. I'm not singing that. In fact, we had developed a little symbol there because the first night I told them, I said, you don't go in there cynical and critical. Go in there looking for gold nuggets. And if you find a gold nugget up there on the screen, sing it with all your heart. And when I said that, I made this. So I caught them for the rest of the week looking at each other during song going. And when they would do that, they would take off singing. And when they would not, they would not. And so with that, Oh, and it led, by the way, into a third conversation with one of the conference leaders, which I had at length. And so I decided by this time, this is just simply what the Lord's doing in my own heart, and in the heart of our kids. So I thought, you know, we need to have this conversation as adults in this church, because invariably you guys find yourself in different places at times. It gets really awkward at times. You sing things that you go sometimes. And so I wanted to have a conversation over the next few weeks about how to respond to that in a way that I think is faithful. Now, I will mention that this is a work in progress. If you want my outline, I fully intend to give you that. But let me tell you, it's still a work in progress. Most of the time I come up here with a seven page outline and we go 45 minutes. Right, as of right now, my outline is spilled over into the 18th page. I'm not covering all that today. I'm just saying we're going to be here for at least two or three weeks, at which at the end of the point, I'll give you this. So don't don't freak out too much about trying to write all this down. Now, let me tell you the faithful way to approach this. And it is, again, a good time to remind you that I'm not the authority here. The authority in the church is the word of God. I'm simply the elder in this particular moment that's trying to lead you in the authority of Scripture. So when you want to deal with a particular topic or issue, you have to be faithful. And the mistake that we all have a tendency to make is this. This is how I feel. Let me go find Scripture to confirm how I feel, and I'll hammer on those particular passages. That is unfaithful, and it's very immature. You go to the text from beginning to end, you don't read your thoughts and opinions into the text. You allow the text to correct your thoughts and opinions. And I can tell you as of right now, just in the last week and a half that I've been pouring over this, I have been corrected a number of times from the text about my thoughts about worship. The problems that we're going to 
experience as we go over this is I haven't read from Genesis to Revelations with the filter of worship. I haven't had the time, nor do I think I have the energy to get that done briefly. And so this is not exhaustive enough from the scriptures. But again, it's a work in progress. Second issue is when you deal with this particular subject and other particular subjects, you have to consider church history. Because you don't understand how church history has affected us negatively and sometimes positively and shaped particular things that go on within the service, especially worship. But you need a massive understanding of church history to understand it all, and I don't have that. But that being said, this will be a good start on what needs to be a strenuous effort on our part to pursue biblical worship. And what I participate, what I appreciate rather about this body is y'all have been humble for the last 10 years. And so I approach these things with excitement as we can begin to learn better about how we should be and what we should do when we gather corporately for worship. Now, in today's church, worship is referred to as styles of worship which immediately that should strike you as very bizarre. Differences that you find in the styles of worship are due solely to personal preference and cultural influence and not scripture. The difference from one church to the next is based on what that church wants to do or what that church has traditionally done. We would never say this phrase because it's a very, very worldly phrase, but nonetheless, I think it applies in this particular circumstance. What's right for one church may not be right for another church. Which again is a bizarre statement if you'll think about it since we're worshiping the same God and we've been adopted into the same family. That's how unfortunately we came across last week. It was thought... I would imagine by most that they must not appreciate this particular style of worship. Therefore, they're not participating. I anguished for your kids, but that's just the circumstances that we found ourselves in. That's how it looked. But they know that's not what was going on. But this way of thinking that regards worship styles has caused so many unhealthy things in the church in fact, we should immediately recognize that something is awry with worship if worship has brought us to division. Think about that. If worship has led a church in division, something is wrong with worship. Now, some of those unhealthy things that have taken place, believe it or not, is church splits. I've seen it a number of times and they actually split over the particular style of worship. Now, if you've gone through a split, and we have, there's something wrong from here, or there's something wrong from there, or there's something wrong in both places. Because worship should never divide. In fact, there is a particular reason that we worship that is for ourselves, and that is to bring us together. And if it's not accomplishing that purpose, it's being done wrong 
or being thought of wrongly. The second thing that's very popular in our day and is another very unhealthy sign of worship is that you have two worship services. You have a particular style to please a particular part of the church. And I'll just say this for division's sake. The elderly crowd likes it a particular way. And then in a different time, you have another worship service that's more contemporary, and that's to please or attract the younger crowd. Hopefully, immediately, you know that something is awry if we're having to have two different styles of worship. Logically, that can never fit if we worship or if worship is for the glory of God and it's how we are given the privilege of expressing our love and adoration for God, then what could possibly make worship ever be driven by human preference or culture so that we describe worship as a style? Again, if we remember that worship is toward God, about God, and for the glory of God, that has to mean that worship is not toward you, it's not about you, and it's not primarily for you. You see, we just haven't been thinking about these things. And certainly if worship is for God, then it goes without saying it must be driven by God. And so the source for faithful worship would have to be the Word of God. Therefore, any church that makes any effort to entertain you, to please you, to attract you, to make you more comfortable or create within you a higher level of emotion or excitement by using a particular style would automatically be out of bounds since worship is solely and singularly for the glory of God. Is that not true? Now, if you're a child of God, here's a question that you need to wrestle with, and I'll deal with your heart with this. If you're a child of God, how could you not enjoy all worship if... And if is highlighted in my notes, if the worship is done in a manner that is consistent with the person of God and the word of God and the expectation that God has of his children, how could you not enjoy that? To give you some examples, I've been in Africa, in Rwanda, and I'll bring this up a number of times because it taught me a great deal about worship. There is a choreographed particular dance with every song. And it was the joy of my heart to dance with the Lord and to sing. Now, as I said, church history plays a significant role in this. So let me give you just a very brief summary. I'm going to rock it through years and probably make my brother-in-law sick that I'm going so fast of things that has affected the church over the period of time since the church began. <clears throat> Excuse me. But at first, I want to give you some idea of what the early church must have looked like in the worship setting because it was very simple. And the devotion was very pure. But at the same time, I don't want to romanticize the early church because they had significant problems Number one, they did not have the finished canon of Scripture. 
And number two, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you know they had serious issues. Okay, But at the same time, you can't miss the reality with what little they had, how faithful they were in worship. You're talking about if you were a believer, you were poor and you were persecuted. And so worship had to be simple. And it was certainly not about them, for it was about Christ, because very likely they were going to give their lives for Christ. And so it was very easy for them to make worship about Christ. Now, if we had time, I'd take you to the book of Acts and I'd take you to 1 Corinthians to see some passages that help us understand that every service they came to the table. In fact, the highlight of the whole worship service for the early church was the table because they remembered very clearly the words of the Lord Jesus Christ on the night before he went to Calvary, that they were to do this in remembrance. Now, another reason that that was the highlight was because it was very likely they didn't even have a preacher. In fact, some history records if they had a copy of one of Paul's letters that really distinguished them and they would read that letter, someone would read that letter from beginning to end every church service. And if they were so blessed, as Paul instructs Timothy and Titus, if they were so blessed to have an elder or, a or an apostle, they would have preaching or teaching of the word. But that was no guarantee. Certainly they had praying that we can find in the text. Again, I'll show you some of these passages. Certainly they had singing. And that singing was done a cappella. In fact, I'll get into this. Musical instruments did not enter worship until the year 1000. And it's still only in the Western church. They don't use musical instruments in the Eastern church. Of course, logically, there's some good reasons for that that I'll talk about when we get to, to that part of the sermon, which is probably week two or three. So don't, don't think that they're a bad thing. I just want you to realize in the early church, they were not a part of what they did. But I want you to notice some passages with me. Uh, notice with me 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 15 and 16, we'll begin there. And I really got to be sensitive with my time. So, babe, will you look at me when I'm 40, 45 minutes into this? Okay. Because I will literally be here for three hours and y'all be going, please shut up. Um, I've been here for hours in the last week and a half. I want you to know something very interesting. First Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Paul's writing this letter. And, he's real, and I've just got a new appreciation for how we need to study First and Second Timothy and Titus for understanding about this. But notice Paul's words in 15. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That gives you a foundation for everything we need to do. It must be truth. And then notice what he says here. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's very likely a confession in the early church that they would have repeated every week or sang. Which is very interesting because that's very doctrinally sound. Okay. Now, if you'll drop down with me in chapter 4 and verse 5, 
Again, I'm not saying that he's describing a worship service, but I am saying he's describing how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church. Chapter 4, verse 5, notice with me, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and by prayer. That would have certainly been a significant part of the church, the praying of the people. And I appreciate how much we pray here. Go over to chapter, again, you're in chapter 4. I think it's in verse um, 13. Look at me in verse 13. <coughs> Sorry. I'm going to have to tell Tyler to mute that. Notice verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So the church at Ephesus had a great advantage because they had Timothy. And so Timothy was responsible, notice, for the teaching of the Word of God. He was to teach the people the truths of God and how they applied to the life. But he also gave time for the public reading of the Word and he would literally read passages from the Old Testament. However, they had access to that. And that's one of the reasons that we begin our service, because I remember this from First Timothy. And once I studied through this, I, I was like, we need to be a part of this. This is a part of what we ought to do in the church. And if you'll realize that is the only time that you hear from God, it's when I read the word of God out loud. You're not hearing from God right now. I'm trying to be faithful. I have prayed that I might be faithful and explain the word of God faithfully. And I will be held accountable for it one day. But you never need to doubt when I read the Word of God aloud that you are hearing from God because you are hearing from God out loud. Amen. Therefore, we read the Word of God in such a way and should probably give more attention and time to that. So that's probably a very faithful representation of what was going on in the early church. Singing, praying, reading, if they had someone to teach them from the word, then teaching. But the highlight was right here. And they did it every Lord's Day. They would come to the table and participate in the body, in the worship of God through the table. And listen, they came before the table with confession and they left the table with great joy and thanksgiving because they understood what the table meant. Now, the guy who changed all that was Constantine. In the year 300, 313, he became the ruler of emperor and he made Christianity the religion of Rome. Now that was very different because beforehand they were being persecuted. Now it was a very accepted thing. In fact, it became a very popular thing. People of wealth became saved and so they took their money and Constantine had the building of very large, ornate churches. The church had never had a church. They understood that the church was a group of people that met in homes. And now all of a sudden they had very large, beautiful buildings. He also influenced the services. Constantine wanted the church uh, or the services to be longer and more colorful and worship became an event. They constructed stages to perform on and worship shifted from participation to observation and you began to watch service 
rather than participate in the worship service. Now you have to realize that this is always the inherent problem when powerful people come into play because powerful people like to dictate what goes on. And so powerful people rather than godly people began to shape the worship service. The reason that I stand on a stage before you today started in the 313. It was not designed this way. Now, anytime that you make man visible in worship, bad theology soon follows, and that's exactly what took place. Priests rose up, Catholicism was formed, and the priests took charge of the service, and every had, everyone had to watch them perform worship. It was no longer any sort of participation on your part. I'll take care of all the worship. You need to sit and watch what I do as we worship God together. They constructed an altar. Hadn't had that before. They constructed an altar at this point and performed sacrifices. And you're like, animal? No. Mass is a sacrifice in which the bread is literally the body of Jesus and the wine is literally the blood of Jesus. And as they hold up the bread, even today, I would think, certainly in Orthodox, they say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sacrifice that they perform on the table is joined with the sacrifice of Christ. That should make you tremble. In fact, Paul warned us about this where he said in Acts 20 and 29, After my departure, wolves will come in among you speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. In other words, there was a reset back to the time before Christ when the Pharisees wanted to be the ones of significance and power and prestige and position. Now that had been brought right back into the church with priests. They declared themselves to be mediators, which is where you get the word vicar. They mediated for you on your behalf. Now, hopefully you find that terribly offensive as well, because there is one mediator between God and man, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. I am not your mediator. You have one, and he is faithful and true. And if I were to be yours, it would not be faithful and true. But again, how did this come about? Because they had changed worship. They had put man in the middle. And once you put emphasis on man, bad theology always follows. The reformers came along and they were intent on undoing everything Catholic. And they overreacted and created their own set of problems in the Protestant church. In fact, you're in Timothy, so turn over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. I think some of our reformers would have been guilty to not pay attention to this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me, Paul instructs Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to who? Faithful men who will be able to to teach others also. What they had done in the church is to take the Word of God, of course, 
by now were beginning to take shape with the Word of God. And they had kept it to themselves. And so the common people didn't have access to this. And unfortunately, there's still charismatic churches on our mountain where the congregation does not have access to this. The man behind the pulpit is the only one that's going to determine what this says. That is foolishness beyond measure. You should be equally offended at that. But the reformers made the mistake when they opened the gates, they opened the gates and now every man picked up a Bible, whether he was faithful or not, whether he had been entrusted with the ability or not to handle the word of God, which is a gift from the Lord himself. And so you gave rise to countless Protestant denominations, many of which are just plain and simple cults and they're just wacky. They overcorrected. But not only did they overcorrect the pulpit, they overcorrected worship. And they began to just turn people loose without guidance with worship. And so some of the churches actually stopped all congregational singing. They reduced the participation down even further still because, again, they were just reacting to Catholicism. And I've told you, anytime you're in one ditch, if you jerk it hard, you're going to be over in the other ditch. And so that's exactly what some of them did. Now, that's all negative. There were positive things that came out of that. The Protestant Reformation in Europe produced some good things. There was a guy by the name of John Knox, who was a Scottish guy, who gave them the, common book of, or, or the Book of Common Prayer in the 1600s. Still use that. 1643, again, the Scott Reformers came out with a directory for the public worship of God. All your Reformed churches in Scotland still use that. The American influences, I just ran through Europe, and I get to the American influences. Liturgy came over here from the, Ameri or from the Anglican church. And I think you all know what liturgy is. It's just a prescribed form or set, or set of forms for public religious worship. Liturgy represents a communal response to participation. In other, in other words, liturgy brought participation back into the church and gave it forms. Audrey and Jonathan, they're not here this morning. They're worshiping with family up in Dayton. But the church that they attended while they were in Fort Worth followed a liturgy. And the very first thing that you did when you got there on Sunday morning was you came confessing your sins. In fact, one church that they attended, you actually bowed where you were you got up out of your pew and got on your knees and confessed your sins. And they sang a song about confession. And it went from the point of confession all the way to celebration in the gospel. And it carried them through structure. I appreciate that to a great deal. I think some of it would be very useful for us. But again, because we're depraved, we always like to ruin things. And so liturgy becomes formalism very quickly. And the heart is left behind as you actually go through the motions. Now, there was an overreaction to liturgy, although Puritanism added a great deal of positive things to worship. There were some of those within Puritanism that overreacted to liturgy. And so they corrected and did away with all forms of liturgy and said the church must be spirit led. Number one, you don't understand liturgy if you make that statement. Number two, if I just told you whatever you do, as long as it's spirit-led, you can do anything, you can see how quickly worship can get out of hand, and so it did. People did anything and everything, declaring themselves to be led by the Spirit, therefore you can't say anything to me. And it led to all sorts of foolishness. Calvin corrected that. 
And Calvin said worship needs to come from this book and this book alone. And so he had a very good hard reset for us, even though he had some negative influences on the church and worship as well. And of course, all my Calvinistic friends all of a sudden hate me for saying that. Two more things about church history and then we're going to be off and running for as long as I can see that you're patient and I'm still making sense. Two things greatly affected the church in America. One greatly affected us. And that was revivalism that started in the 1800s, the second great revival. Let me describe for you a revival or a worship service that came out of revivalism in the 1800s. I think you'll recognize it. Three or more songs are chosen at the beginning of the service to raise the emotional pitch. Followed by some intense personal prayers. The offering should be situated in a proper place following the prayers, followed by a very highly subjective solo to bring the audience to the point of emotional trauma. Trauma is my word. Followed by a very climactic evangelistic sermon with a heavy emphasis on judgment, followed by an altar call. Recognize any of that? That came from the 1800s and that radically affected worship in all of your rural country areas, especially on Sand Mountain. You know, even as a child, I remember scratching my head at that, even though I wasn't a believer, because I thought to myself, if every worship service is evangelistic for a body, at what point are we to understand what we do after that? They abandoned the making of disciples and they went after making decisions and it radically affected the worship service. By this time, you need to realize the table has been abandoned until the pastor feels like we need to go to the table. It's bizarre. The second great thing that affected the church has affected the churches in the valleys. And I think you'll recognize this as well. The Chautauqua of the early 1900s. Let me describe for you what that is. Chautauqua was actually a social movement that took place in the United States to educate adults. Very popular in the 1920s. It spread out into the rural areas. It brought entertainment, culture, speakers, teachers, musicians, showmen, any sort of specialists of the day, preachers. The emphasis was on personality and the ability of the preacher was vitally important. Churches were constructed as movie theaters so that what was taking place on stage and in the pulpit area was easily observed. I just described Highlands. And all that came from the early 1900s where you have a prominent personality behind the pulpit that's going to lead the people and you're supposed to be awestruck at him. That's why I tell you it's important to know church history because when you realize there's holes in your worship but you don't understand where, church history will help you understand where exactly those things would be. So this is how far we've moved from the early church. Participation is solely now observation. Again, the Lord's table is just whenever I want. 
The Word of God that used to be taught by men like faithful men like Timothy and Titus has become interesting talks that are energetic. They're meant to entertain you. Some churches evangelistic sermons followed by altar calls, which was never a part of the early church. They simply shared their faith as they went. And then worship became primarily for the lost rather than for the body. And we'll get into passages where you'll understand that worship is for the church, not the lost. In other words, there's very little doubt if a first century Christian came into our church today, they would experience a wide range of emotions. At one hand, and I can't imagine how they would feel, absolutely overjoyed that we have the finished canon of Scripture. If you pulled somebody out of the first and second century and they saw what we had, they would probably pass out from joy. And the fact that everybody had a copy. And yet at the same time, they would be absolutely distraught at how we do not use Scripture to guide us in all things. They would be absolutely offended at how much we've copied the world rather than followed the book. If you could pluck somebody out of the first century and drop them right in the middle of even what we do now. That's where they would be. So when you come to this, and now let's turn the corner and get into some of this, and I'll quit here in just a minute, but... When you get into this, the first question that you have to ask is, what are you doing? And I don't mean that negative. I mean that in this. Are you having VBS? Well, if you're having VBS, it's not worship. It's not the same thing. Are you at a concert? Are you at a performance or at a show? You need to understand that's not the congregational worship that I'm speaking of. There may be some powerful, wonderful songs sung. I know, I think everybody but me and Paige and our family loves Southern Gospel concerts. We don't. But they all used to go and want us to go, and they just absolutely loved it, and, and we didn't. But that's not worship. And if you say, well, oh, I can worship there. Well, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about what we're doing right now. So you have to make a clear distinction. What are we talking about? I'm talking about when we gather as a body before the Lord, and these are the things that we partake in. Prayer, singing, the reading of Scripture, preaching and teaching the Word. And I would like to add that faithfully, but I can't because of the way that we do it. Communion. Then what we're talking about is worship, okay? So in other words, here's the deal. If you grab a bunch of teenagers, and you bring them together, and you pray, and you sing and you read the Word, and then somebody ministers in the preaching of the Word, what you're doing is worship. And it ought to be in a particular way. It ought to be according to the Word of God. And it ought to look like God, and it ought to glorify God. And when it don't, you have something to deal with. Now, let me start absolutely simply, and if, you, if you're taking notes, you can jot the passages down. But it, nonetheless, it needs to be said. Who we worship is very exclusive. You can go all the way back to the Ten Commandments where the Lord says in Exodus 20, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth below or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them. You shall not serve them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So you have to be very careful during worship that it is extremely exclusive and that everything else is hidden and put away. Even us, because we have drawn close to the God who created the heavens and the earth and we are going to engage in worship. In fact, you remember Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say one of the most profound things where they say, O king, let it be known that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I just can't help but think if I dropped a first century person in this church, they would say, let it be known that I will not be participating in what you're doing because it strikes me as desperately unfaithful. When you think about Matthew 4, where Satan tempted the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord responded, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And then, if you're, be sure you jot this passage down, Revelations 22, verse 8, because John made a mistake in worship, and it was quickly corrected. Revelation 22.8, John says this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of an angel who showed me these things, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. In other words, if John can make a mistake, we can make a mistake. And since John got up off his knees and stopped what he was doing, we need to get up off our knees and stop what is not the worship of God. Now, please don't think, or please don't separate the Trinity here. When I say we worship God, I mean the triune God. You have passages like Hebrews 1.6, where the Lord says, <coughs> excuse me, he again brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all the angels of God worship Him in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning this, everybody in all of creation is to worship except the one that we worship. And everybody in all creation is to worship Him and Him alone. And so we have to realize that every knee, every knee will bow. In worship. Now, I had to turn to the book of Psalms, so run with me to Psalms 29. Let's get into a little more detail. All right, it's been 45 minutes, so I'm going to give you three more things and we'll stop, which is okay because I kind of thought I might stop here. All right, Psalms 29, notice with me verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. In other words, the first point that I want to make is that worship ultimately is to glorify God. And I would say only, but when I show you some particular passages, you'll see it's not only. But I will say ultimately, all worship is to glorify God. So in other words, worship leaders, 
This determines what we sing. If it does not glorify God, don't sing it. And this is where I led the kids in this week, and this is where they quickly caught on, because they can read the words. And it's not hard to determine. I think at Allison's church, they were singing a Hillsong church, which we'll get into later. All of it's good, but one verse. And it's terribly south. And so they changed the whole verse. They rewrote the verse in order for it to glorify God. Okay, here's the thought. Are you okay with this statement? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that everyone goes to heaven. If you're okay with that, please see me after the service. If I were to preach that, there would be a number of men that had better stand up immediately and call me to account. That is not okay from the pulpit under any circumstances. And if it's not okay from the pulpit, why would it be okay from the mock? And some of the lyrics that I'll show you once we get on into this, you go, man, is that a really big deal? Well, is what I'm doing right now a really big deal? I mean, if this is a really big deal, what we're doing, that I be faithful to the text, then I think that we ought to demand of whoever's leading us in worship that they pay attention to the words. Because if we're going to sing them to God as the children of God, shouldn't it glorify God? And yet we found ourselves lifting our voices. Y'all, there was one particular song, and again, I'll, I'll tell you more about this last week. All hands are up in the room, save seven. Ten. Save ten. All hands are up in the room, and everybody's singing. There's smoke. There's lights. There's a very impressive band. And the guy really sang well. And the tune and the tone were perfect. And they all said something that is absolutely biblically not true. And there was one man who led them in that. I think you ought to hold him accountable. I think he is accountable. Because he's leading the flock of God. So everything that we do and we say. Now again, I'm in worship. There's music that I listen to outside of worship that it is, is not sinful. But it's not fit for worship. I like blues and jazz. But we're not doing blues and jazz on Sunday morning. Do you follow my drift? I'm not saying all music. Again, let me bring you into the context of congregational worship. If we're going to gather as a body, call it worship, then the songs that we sing need to be faithful to the Word of God. Every word needs to be faithful to the Word of God. The second thing, go with me to Psalms 105, and you'll, you'll see another reason or another purpose of worship. Psalms 105. Let me tell you what it is, and then I think you'll see it yourself. Okay? Psalms 105, I'm going to read the first five verses. And this tells us that one of the purposes of worship is to remind us of all that God has done. Now watch this in verse 1. Oh, give thanks, the worship leader tells us, to the Lord. Call upon His name, the worship leader says. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him, sing praises to Him. 
Speak of all of His wonders. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. Verse 5, Remember His wonders which He has done, His marvels and the judgments uttered by His mouth. In other words, part of the songs that you guys need to select for us to sing need to remind us of the great things that God has done. In other words, it really begins to help us in the teaching and preaching of the Word because you're singing about what God has done. Now, we won't take time, but I will before we're done with worship. I'll take you to the book of Exodus where the first worship service was led by Miriam with a tambourine. And she would respond to the congregation as they literally sang what just happened in their life in the greatest of detail. And Miriam would respond. It was like a sounding off she would do and the women would do as they sang together exactly what deed God had just done in delivering them out of Egypt. It's awesome. So one of the purposes of worship is actually reminding, even instructing the body or teaching the body what great things God has done. The last thing that I'll mention this morning, make a few comments, is found over in Psalms 118. So turn with me to Psalm 118. Notice verse 24. And if you're taking notes, Ephesians 5, 19 would go under this. But here's what, <coughs> excuse me, Psalms 118, 24 does. And let me tell you the purpose so that you can begin to recognize it. Third purpose of worship is to encourage one another in the faith. And again, that should determine some of the songs that we sing. Psalm 118, verse 24, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And where I see the encouragement is where the worship leader instructs us, let us rejoice, be encouraged. This is the day that the Lord has made. Now where Paul breaks that down for us into much more clear instruction in Ephesians 5.19, he says this, speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Last thought, stay with me and we'll, we'll pray and I'll finish. It's important that you sing. It's important that we hear you pray because it's important that the person sitting next to you hears that. You're there not for yourself. You're there for the glory of God and the encouragement of the brothers and sisters within the body. And when you sing in the faith, you encourage them in the faith. Now, that immediately should change some worship services because if I can't hear my brother sing, I'm missing out on a very important part of worship. If the music's so loud that I can't hear your voices, you're not doing worship well. Which brings us to instruments. No matter how well they're played, if they take the prominent role in the worship service and overwhelm the voices of the saints, they're out of bounds. And you need to do something. Likewise, it brings me to the last comment. Not only need, do you need to hear your brothers and sisters sing sitting next to you, you need to be able to see them. 
And I bring that up because invariably you're going to find yourself in a worship service that is led by some youth director. And he's going to turn the lights off. Now, the reason that he's doing it is unholy altogether. He's trying to manipulate and create experience. And I'll get into that later. He's trying to create worship as an experience. But if I'll take you all the way back to the, the, the early church, worship is not an experience. Okay? It's an expression of our simple devotion to Christ. And I'm not saying that it's not emotional. But I am saying it ought not to be manipulated in such a way to cause some sort of mystical, ecstatic experience on your part. In fact, we need to go out of our way not to do that. So if you turn the lights off, I can't see your face and I'm not encouraged and I become an observer rather than a participator. I love what Stephen and Barbara did and this happened last year. They turned the lights off. He went back and turned the lights on. Before he got to the stage, they had turned it back off. And so they got it in a heated discussion about the lights. And I love my brother. He said, that's just stupid. Now, is that okay at a concert where they may even be singing Christian music? Well, it doesn't matter to me. It's not worship. It's not what I'm, what I'm talking about, right? What I'm talking about is what you and I are doing where we've gathered to sing. We've gathered to pray. We've gathered to sit under the Word of God, and we've gathered at the table. Okay, if you're doing that, it's called worship. And since it's worship, it's defined. Okay? Let's go to the Lord.